mystery tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 93rd episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on this episode, we are featuring the Eloise Asylum, which is in Detroit. And we are joined by special guest Bill Clayton. Denise, why don't you tell us a little bit about Bill? Bill Clayton is a writer from Ann Arbor, Michigan. He's been writing professionally for more than 30 years and has been the editor for the Michigan Engineer, the magazine published by the University of Michigan College of Engineering. He also writes and edits content for the College of Engineering website. He also regularly contributes to a number of magazines and writes about various topics, many dealing with science. And he has interviewed celebrities, CEOs, and average Joes. But what got our attention is his writing on the ghosts and urban legends of Detroit. Bill, how are you? I'm doing real good. Thank you. We covered a brief bio. Why not tell everybody a little more about yourself? Well, I'll tell you about my, my ghost experience. Probably 30 years or so ago, I got a call from a local magazine asking me for ideas, anything of interest that I had. And I just happened to run into some friends from the Michigan Ghost Hunting Society. And they're just real interesting people. I mean, they go out all the time and they, they hunt ghosts with uh, technology which got me interested because I have a technical background. So I started following them around, and indeed, there was a lot to write about. So I contacted the magazine and said, I've got a story for you. And uh, at that point, I started to educate myself further about posts, and uh, I just I just love the whole topic. It's a lot of fun. It definitely is. And you got my attention with this article you wrote on the urban legends of Detroit. Do you have a favorite urban legend that's based in Detroit? Well, there are a couple. I guess the uh, my my favorite uh, is the knock knock ghost. I wrote about, and there was a young girl who was told to stay out of the street, you know, many times by her parents, and one time got away from them, ran out into the street, was hit by a car, and snagged on the bumper, and was dragging the car was dragging her along, and she of course was screaming and panicking and pounding on the side of the car. And before the driver stopped, you know, she was mangled and, and died. And to this day, you know, when people stop at that intersection, they hear knocking on the side of the, the car. And it's said to be the ghost of this girl. I like that one. And I also like the, uh, the one about the white lady of Tanglewood Drive. And Tanglewood Drive is a, a road on Belle Isle, which is in the Detroit River, and they hold a lot of weddings there. This, uh, at this one wedding, right after the ceremony, the husband and wife started arguing, and he got so angry that he hacked her to death. <laughs> Uh, I don't know where he got the instrument from, but he killed her there. He hacked her to death right after their own wedding? Yes, right, oh. right after the wedding, right on the Belle Isle. To this day, it said that she's wandering the island looking for, for husbands to kill. <laughs> Those I are pretty... Like that one because it sounds so absurd. They're both pretty terrifying, <laughs> though. 
The topic of today's episode is the Eloise Asylum. But before we get into that, we want to point you in the direction of our website, historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people wanted to contact us to give us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We have a couple of people to welcome into the Spooktacular crew. We want to welcome Casey. Hi, Casey. And Lydia. Hey, Lydia. We got a lot of shout outs on Twitter, Denise. So we'd like to thank Tracy, Lydia, Dee Dee, Doc. Dark Angel Daria had tweeted at us that she has got roots in Detroit. So she's looking forward to this episode. Excellent. And... Coilette, I think is how you say this. She wanted to congratulate you on your ambassadorship to Ireland for the United States Taekwondo Federation. And she was wondering if we're supposed to call you Ambassador Denise now. You can just call me me (laughs) or Denise. (laughs) I told her, just say, hey, you. Hey, you. That works. And then we got a message over on the website from Michelle. She said, love your podcast. So funny and informative, really relaxing after a hard day. Thanks, you guys. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Michelle, for that. Thank you. And then we have three five-star reviews. The first one is from Dave Wolfetched. I guess is how you say that. Thank you for your wonderful podcast. I listen to it as I walk every morning in Old City, Philadelphia. I often turn in fear as I pass the colonial graveyards, thinking that I will soon be lying in a similar grave as someone in the future passes in fear. Hopefully listening to your podcast as do I. I love you both. Well, Dave, we hope that it's a long time before you end up in one of those graveyards. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but thanks for tuning in to us. I guess you're listening while you pass the graveyard rather than whistling past the graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> JMMS66, wonderfully informative, easy listening, hard subjects to cover, delivered seamlessly. Thanks so much. And we have Calico Selena. I love HGB. The hosts bring lots of enthusiasm to their subject every week. I've listened to every episode and they get better and better each time. Listening to a podcast feels like catching up with good friends. They've created a fun online community on Facebook and I love that they are open and accessible for their listeners. Keep up the good work and thank you for the entertainment. Well, thank you, Calico. Appreciate that. Yes. Thank you, everybody. All right, Denise, I love to say this to you. Are you ready to go to the asylum? (laughs) It's just because you would actually like to put me in an asylum sometimes. <laughs> Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash history goes bump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. Welcome to this moment in Oddity History. In January 1941, the Radio Intelligence Division of the Federal Communications Commission picked up the signals from an unauthorized radio inside an apartment building in the Bronx. The FBI was notified, and the G-Men were on the case. They started investigating stores that sold parts that could be used to build shortwave radios. They found a store in Manhattan whose owner thought that a certain customer had been acting nervous and paranoid. That man was Joseph Klein, and he was a German-American. He shared his apartment with two other men, one of whom had been a German officer, and the other that was a Russian. Both men had become citizens, but their loyalties were not with America. The former officer had been called to Germany and trained as a radio operator and sent back to America as a sleeper. The Russian had been trained in Germany in the sending and receiving of coded messages by radio. 
The G-men were able to pick up the radio messages sent by the spies, but they could not figure out the code. The Nazis used published books to design their code. In order to crack the code, the G-men would need to find out what book was being used. They had seen one of the spies pick up a book at a Yorkville store, but they did not see the title. The store stamped the inside of its books, so if they could enter the apartment and find the Yorkville book, they would have their code breaker. The G-men's hands were tied. It was illegal for them to enter the apartment without a warrant, and a warrant would tip their hands. So they enlisted the services of an unlikely person, a cleaning lady. The woman was very excited to help, but she also was scared because if she was caught, she might be killed. She called the G-men a few days later and told them that she found only one book in the apartment that was stamped by the Yorkville store. It proved to be the key to the code. The G-men continued to collect and decode messages and foil the Nazi spy ring. The fact that they did it with the help of a cleaning lady is odd. This Day in History was given to us by Jessica Bell. On this day, December 31st in 1907, the first ball is dropped to welcome in the year 1908 at Times Square in New York City. Times Square had been the site of the New Year's Eve celebration since 1904. After the city banned the fireworks display in Times Square, the owner of the New York Times, Alfred Oach, arranged to have a large, illuminated, 700-pound iron and wood ball lowered from the tower flagpoles precisely at midnight to signal the end of 1907 and the beginning of 1908. The ball descended 141 feet in 60 seconds down to a specially designed flagpole beginning at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time and resting at midnight to signal the start of the new year. In 1942 and 1943, the glowing ball was temporarily retired due to the wartime dim out of lights in New York City. The crowds who still gathered in Times Square in those years greeted the new year with a minute of silence followed by chimes ringing out from sound trucks parked at the base of the Times Tower. The current version of the ball features a computerized LED lighting system and an outer surface consisting of triangle-shaped crystal panels. Thanks to satellite technology, a worldwide audience estimated at over 1 billion people watches the ceremony each year. The lowering of the ball has become the world's symbolic welcome to the new year. We wish all of the listeners to History Goes Bump a very happy and healthy new year. The term asylum brings about many images, and most of them are not pleasant, particularly the asylums of years ago. Today we know more about mental illness and have better plans for caring for people. But in the past, mentally ill people were treated as cast-offs, and it was permissible to do horrid things to these people. One of the most notorious asylums in America was Eloise Asylum. Conditions were overcrowded, and care was subpar at times. The asylum grew from the origins of a poorhouse to a schoolhouse and post office to a series of buildings built over the years to house the large amount of sick and mentally ill people brought here. 
Eloise is reputed to be one of the most haunted locations in the Detroit area, and for good reason. There is also a cemetery nearby named Butler Cemetery that has a reputation for being haunted as well. Join us as we explore the history and the hauntings of the Eloise Asylum. The Eloise Asylum sounds like an amazing place in its heyday. It was basically its own city, and there were numerous buildings on the property, Bill. Would you share a little bit about the history before the asylum was even there? Well, it was a a farm that belonged to a guy named William Gulag. In 1832, he decided to open up some of his farmland to be a burial ground, and that eventually became the Butler Cemetery, but it's still known in some, some places as the William Gunnar Cemetery. In 1839, they began, uh, Wayne County, which is where uh, this area is, had a little township called Nankin. Nankin overlapped the farmer's territory, acreage, and they began using the cemetery, too. Nankin eventually became Westland, and uh, Butler Cemetery became the main cemetery for Westland. started burying people in unmarked graves. It's said that there are 352 people buried there. It doesn't sound like a lot. But the, uh, the odd thing about that is that there aren't really that number of headstones. No one knows where the other graves are. They just, they just know that they're in that area. How far is Westland from Detroit? Westland is about 20 miles from Detroit. The whole area is kind of called Metro Detroit. Really, it's one big connected city for about 40 miles. It's a huge area with a lot of small towns and townships. Button uh, Cemetery is without doubt the, uh, the most famous haunted cemetery in southeast Michigan. And it's uh, a favorite site for, for ghost hunters. People come from all over to, to visit Butler Cemetery, and I think it was in 1980 that it was visited by uh, a psychic named Marion Kukla, and she has a Wiccan name of uh, Gordella, and she visited the site, called it one of the most active sites that she had ever come across. During her visit, she came across what she thought was a blonde wig, uh, and when she picked it up, turned out to be the, the uh, scalp of a woman. And a little farther beyond that, they found bones. And just beyond that, they found a, a coffin torn apart. So, of course, that started a lot of stories and brought out more, more ghost hunters. And it's st- still a popular site today. You can go there any weekend and see a lot of people roaming around. And they're looking for orbs of light. Those are the most foreman types of haunts there. Wow, that is interesting. Most cemeteries are not haunted, so it's unique to hear that the Butler Cemetery is so active. There was a poorhouse that originally occupied where the Eloise Asylum is today. Who did they put in that poorhouse? Well, it has a long, long history. It goes back to when Wayne County bought this tavern, Black Horse Tavern, and then they bought around 1,600 acres around that. And people were just using it for all sorts of things, including burials. Meanwhile, they started building more structures. There got to be at one time 75 buildings on the uh, the property. And all of them were used for uh, people who were, well, insane. They had uh, a unit for tuberculosis. They had uh, one for vagrants. They had some for people who were just physically incapacitated. There was room for about 8,000 but at one time they housed 10,000 people. 
Whoa. Talk about overcrowding. People were ignored. Uh, People were left on the floors, uh, bare floors, concrete floors. They were chained uh, in beds and on walls. And it was the most abhorrent way to treat people I could ever imagine. It was so famous, like uh, when I was growing up in the Detroit area, if you know how little kids insult each other, if, if you wanted to tell someone, you, someone they were crazy, you would say, you're going to go to Eloise. This was just a, you know, a, a place that was uh, a focal point around Detroit. It sounds like everybody who was a reject in society was put into Eloise Asylum. Yes. Yes. If, if, uh, if you didn't have a spot in, I guess, what you'd call normal society, you, you had a good chance of ending up there, at least if you were in the Detroit area. It was probably worse than a prison because people had no control over themselves. Uh, they were also the, uh, the object of a lot of uh, medical experiments. Uh, they used x-ray there for the first time, but didn't know how to control it. Oh, jeez. So there were, there were a lot of burn victims. They experimented with uh, different chemicals. They used to try to fool with people's physiology. They did a lot of lobotomies there, just experimentally, not, you know, not with any idea in mind that they would be curing something. They just you know, cuts out, cut out parts of the brain to see what would happen. These people were treated like dirt. They were worthless. They did have a number of, of interesting inmates over the years. There was one guy, Elijah McCoy. And uh, he was an inventor. He invented a self-oiling steam engine. And not long after that, started to lose it. He, he went insane. But uh, during that time, if you had one of these engines, people would say, well, that's the real McCoy. And that's where that phrase came from. Oh, wow. Elijah McCoy. And he died in Eloise. There was also a shortstop from the Detroit Tigers in the 1930s. And I can't remember his name right now, but he uh, eventually ended up in Eloise and died there. And they claim to still see him at Tiger Stadium downtown in Detroit, uh, running around the outfield. <laughs> <laughs> A little extra teammate out there, eh? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, a little exercise. I was telling Denise earlier that information on the Eloise Asylum reads like a horror story. And you've shared some pretty horrible things that went on there too, Bill. If you think about an asylum and a place you wouldn't want to be locked up, Eloise, to me, seems to be that place. We've researched several asylums so far, and this seems to be the worst, whether it was the people locked up there or the treatment. And much of that treatment was probably due to the fact that the staff was ill-equipped and there really was not enough of them. And who knows how much training they had. This property was housing 10,000 people when it was designed, as you pointed out, for a maximum of 8,000 people. There were so many people and uh, so little space that they didn't know where to put them. Despite that, it was a real interesting community. The whole place was self-sufficient. It had its own fire department. It had its own police department. It had a small farm area that grew cotton and even tobacco. It grew enough tobacco that it uh, was able to make money for the Eloise. The power plant was one of the most advanced in southeast Michigan. It was. It, it had, in a, in a lot of ways, a, a lot of advanced aspects. If I were <laughs> had to go somewhere, I would rather die than go there. I'm sure other people would, too. Yeah, I would have to agree. How long was this facility open for? 
It opened in 1839. It closed in 1984. Uh, wow. There are still five buildings there that are, are open. They're used as office buildings. Some of the other buildings are still there in, you know, in decay, very slowly raising a lot of them because they're uh, a nuisance. You know, a lot of the high school kids go in there and explore. Ghost hunting societies aren't terribly fond of that because they like to do a lot of their work in there. There's one building called Building D, which is also called the K. Ballard Building now, I believe. She was a, a director at one time. And there are claims that, that they see ghosts in the third, uh, third floor hallway all the time. <laughs> I don't know why the third floor, but that's where they see them. And they also hear, hear voices in the, uh, the commissary. That must rattle them. Now, this is a government building with government employees, correct? Yeah, the, uh, if, you, uh, if you go online to YouTube, there's a video of, of uh, I think he's, I don't know his name, but he's the director now, and he gives a history of the place. It sounds like at least Building D is a very functional uh, office building used by the, the county. The surrounding area is horrible. It's, uh, there's a, a trailer park that surrounds one corner of the of Eloise's property, and it's said that some of the graves that have been uh, lost are are under those trailers, that trailer park. Uh-oh. And and some stories go that there are a lot of ghost sightings in the trailer park. There are seven thousand people approximately buried in numbered graves on the Eloise site, and they're digging them up trying to find out who these people are. There just are no records. They're all numbered. So it has all the makings for, for great ghost stories. It's a, it's a real hot spot in southeast Michigan for that type of thing. Well, especially with all the horrors that went on there, were men, women, and children put there together? Uh, yes, there were. The Eloise Asylum was named for the postmaster for Wayne County after his daughter. Is that correct? Uh, yes. I saw a news article from November of this year that they had put the property up for sale for $1.5 million. Have you heard anything about that? No, I haven't. I know they sold 900 acres, I think it might have been in 19, you know, around 1990, and there's an 18-hole golf course there now. <laughs> have you heard of any sightings of ghosts on the golf course? <laughs> I don't know, but I, I, I imagine a lot of bad shots are blamed on the ghosts now. <laughs> Or they get a ghoul in one. (laughs) Ghoul in one. (laughs) So going back to my comment on this building, D, being a government building, it's understandable that government employees don't want to look nuts. So these employees aren't going to make up these stories about supernatural experiences. I would think they're pretty reliable. Have you heard reports from, say, high school students, urban explorers, paranormal investigators that have had experiences on the property? Uh, yes. I think there are four other buildings that are left there. One is the fire department building. One is the police department. There's a barn. And the fifth one, I can't remember what they used the fifth one for. The barn there, on the second floor of the barn, they used to keep overflow of the patients. And they, uh, they claim that they can still hear screaming and wailing in the barn, uh, along with pig noises, because I guess they used to raise pigs there. So I guess they have ghost pigs. We've heard the criminally insane patients were housed in this area above the pig barn. And this reminds us of Silence, Silence of, of the, the Lambs. Lambs. Oh, creep me out. 
the, uh, the barn is one of the favorite places for people to go. The power plant is still there, but just very recently, the, uh, the smokestack collapsed. Mm. There are claims that the, the ghost brought that down. Every, everything was <laughs> in a ghost fault. Um, <laughs> The fire department, they claim they heard bells. I haven't heard anything about the police, but I assume that they're there eating donuts. You know? <laughs> uh, but those buildings are still there. The police department and the fire department, I think, are now, but they're uh, recognized by the state. Uh, they, they can never be torn down. They're historical buildings on the historic registry. Do they have plans other than this golf course to develop the land, like building condos or something? Yes, it is. They are selling parts of the property, or they have plans to uh, to build a mall. They've sold some of the property. They're going to build high-end apartments and condos. That's all I can think of right now, but you're right. They they are developing it. They, uh, it's so much property, and it's valuable. And I think they might begin farming again, too. It's, it's a very fertile land. Oh, I bet, with 7,000 bodies buried there. Don't recommend that fertilizer. <laughs> Um, Now, in the late 70s, the Walter P. Luther Psychiatric Hospital was actually opened there, and then it's kind of stayed as a psychiatric. Is that still there, or have they torn that down as well? I believe that's gone. Okay. There is. There are still some patients there, but I haven't heard of that building, but there are still some patients housed there. One of the buildings still in use is a commissary, and I'm sorry, it was the old commissary, and they're using it now to house 23 homeless families. Um, So they're putting it to some good use. Yeah, it's better than just letting it sit there. I wonder if they have had any experiences. Then they might not be thankful for the housing. Yeah, I I can't imagine what the kids or the families are going to grow up to be. It will be interesting in the future if they build those condos, if reports start coming in about hauntings just because of the land that they are built upon. I've often wondered if ghosts start to congregate in one area, whether or not, you know, they start forming their own little townships. Uh, I mean, Elwood was, was at one time a small city. You know, where all these these spirits and ghosts go? Uh, you know, it can get pretty lonely, I imagine, on the other side. But I often wondered if, you know, ghosts form attachment. Uh, they seem to form attachments to, to buildings and areas like graveyards. So do they form attachments to each other? Uh, I've wondered about that. Although I suppose, you know, one of the horrible parts of being dead would be to be alone. That's why they haunt people. You know, they need company. I had never thought about that. Do ghosts form societies? We hear about locations with multiple entities, and there are claims that one ghost in particular might be keeping all the other ghosts there, kind of like trapping them. But what about a little society? Do they take on roles like a mayor or a boss or a leader? Are different entities given specific jobs? That's really an interesting theory to think about. Yeah, it, uh, it makes sense to me. You want to be around your, your own kind. It would also make me wonder if in the afterlife, do these ghosts, do they shed their gender? Do they shed their nationality? Are they just one thing? You know, maybe in the afterlife, we finally find that, that existence where everyone is equal. Wouldn't that be something? Yes, wouldn't that be nice? Do you have a theory about what a ghost is? I do. And again, maybe this is just my my scientific background. I think there's some validity about electromagnetic fields being around ghosts. (laughs) Where does the energy go when, uh, when something dies? If all energy and matter is exchangeable, and if it's always conserved, which is the law of physics, you know, where does it go after the body dies? So one theory might be electromagnetic radiation. And some of the instruments that the ghost hunter societies carry are these 
electromagnetic field detectors. They also carry thermometers. Temperatures drop, uh, supposedly, when you're in the presence of, of a ghost. And that's consistent, too, with electromagnetic fields. So from a scientific standpoint, I'd, I'd say that there are, there are a lot of ghosts floating around like little magnets. Yeah. Sounds like a reasonable theory. It's hard to prove ghosts, but if you're going to do it, it's best to do it with science. It's not, you know, a theory I would bout in a bar too often, but... <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Just like you don't want to walk into a bar and announce, I saw a ghost. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Bill, I've included a link where people can find out more about you and your writing. You are a freelance writer and also a link to your article on Urban Legends. I really enjoyed that article. Terrific. Thank you very much. We want to thank you for joining us on this episode. We greatly appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. I was in the spirit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Denise, that was an interesting interview there with Bill. And, you know, he's a writer, not a podcaster or a radio guy. So he did a great job, I thought. Absolutely. Uh, We wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the hauntings and kind of broaden that out a little bit. And I found this account by somebody who calls themselves Night Wolf. By the time I was in my teenage I want to be scared stage, There were only three dilapidated buildings left standing on the hospital side of Michigan Avenue. The Piggery, Cannery, every time I think about that Piggery, I just get chills. That's because of that prequel or sequel of Silence of the Lambs. (laughs) It just grosses me out. (laughs) Nothing like being eaten alive by pigs. Ah! The Piggery, Cannery, and the Train Depot were left on the farm side of the avenue. My friends and I were very taken with the buildings and had toured them many a late night. We always contained a sense of well-being upon entering, and though we had seen many cops patrolling the area, they'd never seen us and we were never caught. Upon entering the first of the many steel doors in the back area of the old hospital building itself, you could either go directly downstairs or directly up. We chose to go down first. In the ruined basement, our flashlights played upon five-foot-tall metal crib-like enclosures and a metal straight-back chair with leather straps on the armrests and legs. Turning, an immediate right, you face the morgue, complete with pull-out drawers and metal table with leather padding. One other room in the basement we found disturbing. We were never sure what it would have been called. The room was about eight by six, and along the left side there was a cell with a swinging door leaving just enough room to walk. Contained in the cell was a metal cot bolted to the wall in a place where the toilet had once been. When the cell door suddenly slammed behind me as I searched, I quickly ran out. So that was their haunting experience. And it's an interesting description. That just sounds creepy. And what that cell was used for, because they had criminally insane people there. So was this like really for somebody who was incredibly disturbed? Uh, That's what it sounds like. And I'll tell you one thing. It would have been creepy just to walk into that cell, much less have the door slam on you. Mm -hmm. I would have been out of there. And Diane would have been in her depends. (laughs) Indeed. And right behind me. Yes. Government employees have seen apparitions. One woman claims to have seen a brown-haired woman in a window several times. Lights are turned off and on. Disembodied growls and moans are heard. Channel 4 in Detroit joined the Michigan Ghost Hunter Society on a ghost hunt, and before it even got dark, they captured an entity in a window. The elevator was uncooperative, as if something else were controlling it. Strange orbs of light were captured, different colors and different sizes. Yeah, it's an interesting video. You can find that on YouTube of Channel 4 visiting the Eloise Asylum. And, you know, orbs, take them or leave them. But some of them were quite interesting. She did take the pictures to a photo expert, and he 
said he really could not explain many of them, especially there was one orb that seemed like it was kind of cut off in the doorframe, which means that it would have been behind the doorframe. And I don't think I've ever seen an orb caught that way. Usually orbs are floating in front of stuff because you're catching dust that's pretty close to the camera lens when you're getting an orb. So it really wouldn't seem like it was, it, it kind of gave depth to the orb that because it, right. it, it was kind of taken from a distance. So what have you. But it was interesting to watch this woman from Channel 4. Generally, you don't think a regular news station will go in and do a ghost hunt and have things happen. But lately, that's been happening quite a bit. And this woman was like, wow, this, this is weird. A poem was written about Eloise Asylum back on May 29, 1979 by Joseph Michael Slezik. And he named it Eloise, the Passing of a Friend. And while we've talked about how horrid things were at this location, Denise, this poem kind of gives it a feeling of maybe it wasn't quite so bad all the time. When first we met, she stood tall and proud, her family 10,000 strong. From A to N, each blade of grass hand-clipped, lest it grow too long. Unfortunately, it is no longer so, for that my friend was two decades ago. The bingos, the dances, the movies, the games, the carnival when summer came round, the neat tulip beds, the walks on the lawn, group laughter is such a sweet sound. Unfortunately, it is no longer so, for that my friends was two decades ago. There were fresh oven smells from the bakery, where the bread was far better than all. Yes, the shops in the store and the post office too were there if you wanted to call. Unfortunately, it is no longer so, for that my friend was two decades ago. Can you tell me why it all worked so well back when we first met? And now weeds replace lawn, and from dead buildings we feel the doom that decay begets. Unfortunately, it is now so, for I write this, my friend, but two days ago. That is an interesting poem, because you wonder if it was actually an inmate or somebody who lived in the community. Yeah, I don't know. Or I say inmate. I guess that would be patient. I'm yeah, sorry. patient, not an inmate, yes. <laughs> Although some of them were criminally insane, which right. to me is, there's not much of a difference there. So perhaps the time spent at Eloise Asylum was not always unpleasant. Maybe some former residents find it hard to leave. Have the bad experiences of some patients led to negative energy and hauntings on the property? Bodies have been disturbed and built over. Has this caused spirits to be at unrest? Is the Eloise Asylum haunted? That is for you to decide. And Denise, since we just got done talking about an asylum and these hospitals, we might as well stay on a roll. We're going to do another one on the next episode. We're going to have Sylvia Schultz on with us to talk about the Peoria State Hospital. It's a fascinating place, and she's definitely an expert on it. So I think you guys will really enjoy that. Absolutely. And the really neat thing about Sylvia is not only is she an expert about the, the hospital, but she's also had some of her own personal experiences in the hospital as well. So it, it was definitely a fascinating interview. We're so glad that you've joined us for this one. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. Executive producers of this episode have been Dave and Ann, Melissa, Levi, Nicole, Jade, Sharon, Jen, April, Katie, Stephen, Heather, Amy, Tanya, Leanna, Laura, Seth, Tracy, Josh, Barbara, Ashley, Griffin, David, Wendy, Dan, Janice, Roger, John, Laura, and Homeworks. Thank you. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, 
history goes wrong. Listen to M. Writing Podcast. Society 13. Rebuilding society. One podcast at a time. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com.